Amen. Well, please take your copy of Scripture and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be continuing our series this morning as we're looking at Paul's first missionary journey and considering the theme of proclaiming the gospel. Acts chapter 13. And this morning we're going to look at verses 42 to 48. Verses 42 to 48. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we want to provide you with a Bible so that you can follow along in the sermon. And so if you look around where you're seated, you should find a black Bible somewhere around where you're seated, and you'll find our passage on page 922 and encourage you to grab that Bible and open it up and follow along because we'll be referring to the passage of Scripture throughout the sermon. Acts chapter 13, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's such a precious gift and opportunity to be able to read your word and to gather together as Christians, to consider your word together. We thank you for the the power of your word. We thank you that your word contains life. And we thank you, Lord, that it is through your word that you grant life, that you awaken us to the reality of your love and mercy and grace in Christ, and that you strengthen us and encourage us and help us to be faithful Christians for your glory. And so, Lord, we pray now that through your word, you would do all those things and more. And uh, we pray that as a result, uh, your name would be glorified. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, there are a number of martial arts, forms of martial arts, that emphasize using the weight and strength of your opponent against them uh, and preserving your own energy and strength at the same time. So some of these forms of martial arts are uh, judo or jiu-jitsu or wing chun or aikido. And so all of these are forms of martial arts by which you use the strength and the energy of your opponent against them while preserving your own strength and energy. So, for example, if someone is rushing at you to grab you, 
Instead of resisting, you might grab their arm and duck your shoulder and use the force of their weight and energy coming towards you to flip them over onto their back. Now, of course, this can be very frustrating to one's opponent, and if successfully and consistently executed, it can be very demoralizing. Well, my friends, the God of the Bible possesses this skill. In fact, we witness it again and again in the book of Acts. I've entitled our message this morning, God Uses Opposition to Fulfill His Missionary Purposes. And it seems in the book of Acts that the more and more the disciples are opposed, the more they experience hardship, the more they experience persecution, God uses that opposition, that persecution, He uses that hardship to actually bring about more proclamation of His Word, more of the advance of the gospel, more people hearing about Jesus, more churches being established, more of the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled, and more of Christ's name being glorified. Over and over again we see in the book of Acts that God uses opposition, opposition to the gospel, to fulfill His purpose to bring about the gospel to the nations, to bring about the joy and redemption of all peoples through Jesus Christ. In this way, God is the grand master of divine jiu-jitsu. He turns opposition towards the gospel into advancement of the gospel. We've been following Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, and last time we were in the book of Acts, we saw that Paul and Barnabas had traveled to Antioch in Pisidia, and they attended the Sabbath there on a, on, uh, they attended uh, the synagogue on a Sabbath, and Paul preached the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures, declaring that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior and Deliverer of Israel. Now this week what we want to look at is how those who heard this message responded. How did those who were in that synagogue on that Sabbath, as they heard Paul preach this gospel, this good news about Jesus, how did they respond? Well, our narrative this morning in verses 42 to 48 contains, you might call them, five stages or five movements as the narrative unfolds, and we'll look at each. First, we'll see interest in the gospel. Secondly, opposition to the gospel. Third, boldness in the gospel. Fourth, joy in the gospel. And fifth, the power of the gospel. So if you're taking notes, I know I said those fast, but here they are again. Interest, opposition, boldness, joy, and power. So first, interest in the gospel. Look there in verses 42 to 44. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So you see the initial response here. After Paul preaches the gospel in the synagogue, those who attended the service that day, in verse 42 you see, they begged Paul and Barnabas to return the next Sabbath and to continue this teaching. 
to continue to explain to them how this Jesus is the Messiah, to continue to explain to them how He died for their sins and He was raised from the dead and how through faith in Him they could experience the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 43, Luke records that many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So these were ethnic Jews, text says there, many Jews, and they were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. That's what Paul is speaking of there when he speaks of devout converts to Judaism. So you have Jews and you have some Gentiles who have converted to Judaism, who were there in the synagogue hearing Paul proclaim Christ, and they want to know more. Maybe they took Paul and Barnabas out to lunch that day. Maybe they had them over to their house that afternoon. Surely they would have had meetings with Paul and Barnabas over the next uh, several days. And they must have been telling others about this good news as well. Because you see there in verse 44 that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now just a quick application here. If we want others to hear about this good news, if we want others to hear about this Jesus, we should follow the example of the individuals here in Antioch of Pisidia, and we should tell them about it, right? We should invite them to come to service and Christian worship with us on Sundays. We know as well that Antioch was a predominantly Gentile city, and so we need to understand that here in verse 44, when it says that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, this crowd would have been predominantly Gentile. So all these Gentiles from the city are now coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath to hear the word of the Lord. Last Monday, we hosted our third annual Churches by the Book conference, and I really appreciate those of you who prayed for the conference. The Lord blessed us with a good conference, and I believe that those who attended were really challenged and encouraged by the teaching and time together. And at the conference, I preached a message from Genesis chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 9. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through three, God promises to Abraham, he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, in you, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this constitutes then God's covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament. My friends, understand that these events here that we are reading in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch of Pisidia are a fulfillment of that promise. You see, what's happening is that through Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, and in particular through Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus, the families of the earth, the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, are coming to hear the message of God's salvation and redemption. Now, it's not that prior to this event that the Gentiles had never experienced God's blessing or salvation. In the Old Testament, we see small fulfillments of this promise. We might say it's in seed form. So some of you might remember like Rahab the harlot, who was a Gentile and who assisted the Israelites in their conquest of Canaan. Or Naaman the Syrian, who was healed by Elisha the prophet. 
And so we see incidents, incidents of this in the Old Testament, kind of in seed form. But then with the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, we see that this promise begins to bud. So in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, we see that he heals the Roman centurion servant. Or he heals the Syrophoenician woman. He's ministering to Gentiles. The blessing of God is coming to Gentiles through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And of course, Jesus' last words to his disciples make it clear that his ministry and his work of redemption is not just for the Jews, but it is for all peoples. So he declares in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And even as we open the book of Acts, and the opening words of the book of Acts, we hear the words of the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That is the capital city of the nation of Israel. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it started in Jerusalem and then would go to the ends of the earth. So in Acts, what we see is this promise is beginning to blossom. It's, it's small at first in the book of Acts, but it's like a flower that is beginning to open up. And so in Acts chapter 8, we read of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 11, we read of the church being established in Antioch in Syria, which was a church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Then in Acts chapter 13, we see the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. And you might remember the first stop that they made was on the island of Cyprus. And on the island of Cyprus, we see the conversion of one Gentile leader. His name was Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsul of the island of Cyprus. But something unique, something significant is happening here in Antioch and Pisidia. What we see in Antioch and Pisidia is not just one Gentile coming to faith in Christ, but what we see here in Antioch and Pisidia is that the Gentiles are responding to the gospel in mass. You see it there in verse 44. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And again, this city was largely predominantly Gentile. We could say it this way. Revival was taking place. The Gentiles as a whole were coming to hear this message of the Jewish Messiah and salvation and redemption offered in His name. And so what's happening here is that the promises of God's salvation that were made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 are beginning to be fulfilled. This, my friends, is reason to rejoice. It's reason to celebrate. Of course, Paul and Barnabas were delighted to see this happening and their hearts were filled with joy. But this makes the response of those in the city, in particular those Jews in Antioch of Pisidia who resisted this reality all the more puzzling and concerning. That leads us to our second point. So first of all, we see interest in the gospel. Our second point is opposition to the gospel. Look there in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, why is it that if, if the synagogue is packed, right? Like if our church was just packed and people were all outside and wanting to hear, we would think that would be a wonderful thing. Why is it that the Jews in Antioch, Pisidia here are 
angry. That's what the text says. Why are they angry? Well, notice there it says because they were jealous. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. We can assume that this synagogue was present in the community for some time. And we know that the leaders, this is interesting, we know that the leaders of this synagogue would have been open to Gentile converts, right? Because back in verse 43, we see that there were devout converts to Judaism who were in the synagogue before Paul and Barnabas came. So these would have been Gentiles who would have accepted the Old Testament Scriptures. They would have had to gone through certain process to become Jews. They would have had to be circumcised. They would have had to observe the Sabbath. They would have had to follow certain rituals and Jewish laws and so forth. But through a process, they became Jews. They were converts to Judaism. But now what we see here is Paul and Barnabas show up, and Paul preaches one sermon. He preaches one sermon from the Old Testament Scriptures. And the whole Gentile community is flocking to the synagogue. And you can imagine that some of the leaders of that synagogue, some of the Jewish leaders of that synagogue would have thought to themselves, who do these guys think they are? And what's so special about them? We've been ministering in this place for all these years, for decades. The Gentiles have never responded like this. And so part of what's happening here, I think, is ministerial jealousy. Why are so many responding to these newcomers who have just entered our city. At the same time, I think there's another type of jealousy that's taking place. Not only is it a ministerial jealousy, but I think there's a spiritual jealousy that's taking place. Paul and Barnabas were preaching that through faith in Jesus, and through faith in Jesus' redemptive work in the cross and resurrection, everyone could be forgiven of their sins and know God. You remember back in Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, this is what Paul declared on that first Sabbath in the synagogue. Look there at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Now, when they first heard this message, it piqued their interest. They said, well, we want to hear more about this. But now on this second Sabbath, as they gather to hear more, they're actually observing, experiencing the implications of this message. The implications of this message that through faith in Jesus, everyone can know God's forgiveness. And the implications of that message is a synagogue full of of Gentiles, and they don't like it. Luke says they were filled with jealousy. We might imagine what some of these Jews in Antioch and Pisidia were thinking to themselves. I was born from the line of Abraham. I've been circumcised. I've kept the law of Moses. And you're telling me that through faith in Jesus, these dirty, unclean Gentiles, pagans, have same access to the Jewish Messiah and the blessing of God's salvation and redemption as me? 
There may have even been some of the Gentiles who had become Jews who thought, you mean I went through this whole process to become a Jew, and now these pagans are going to show up, say, I believe in Jesus, and they receive all the spiritual blessings promised to Abraham. Luke records, as a result, they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, those last two words there actually aren't the best translation. The word reviling is actually, in the original language, blasphemio. You can hear our English word in that word, right? Blasphemio. It's the word blaspheming. And the word him there is not in the original language. So the idea, I think, is more that they were contradicting Paul and they were blaspheming Christ, God, the gospel. In fact, this is how the New American Standard translates the verse. They were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. We can imagine some of the things that they might have said. We don't believe this message that Paul is preaching. This Jesus of whom Paul speaks, he was crucified. He's a cursed Messiah. He's a damned Messiah. He cannot be the Messiah of Israel. And so they opposed Paul. And they opposed the gospel. The third movement, though, in our narrative. First, we see interest in the gospel. Second, opposition to the gospel. Notice third, though, boldness in the gospel. Look there at verses 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, one of the things that we need to see here is that Paul and Barnabas do not respond to Jewish opposition with fear and retreat. But rather, Luke tells us just the opposite. They respond with boldness. You see it there in verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And boldness is a theme in the book of Acts. We know that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul asked the church in Ephesus to pray for him, to pray that he might have boldness. He says, pray pray that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And here in Acts chapter 13, we have an example of Paul speaking with evangelistic boldness. Now notice the source of Paul's boldness. Notice that the source of Paul's boldness in this moment is God's Word. It's not his own personality or charisma or whatever. It's God's Word. The source of his boldness is God's purpose and plan of redemption revealed in God's Word. So he declares in verse 46, this is Paul and Barnabas speaking, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken to you first, that is to the Jews, 
since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So here, Paul and Barnabas are saying, despite the Jews opposing them in this situation, they want it to be made known it was necessary that the gospel be proclaimed to you first. This was demonstrated in the Old Testament by God coming to the Jewish people, initiating a relationship with them, declaring them to be His people, entering into covenant with them. So the Jews had a priority in that sense. And it was announced by the Lord Jesus Himself. So you know Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke's record of Jesus' great commission, we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance for sins, and that repentance of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Here it is, beginning from Jerusalem. Why beginning from Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish nation. Here, Jesus is indicating priority should be given to proclamation to the Jews. Then we read of this again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says there, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the Jews first, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And listen, my friends, one of the things, in this text we see there is a shift that is taking place in Paul's ministry in the larger ministry of the church moving forward in the book of Acts. But understand this, Paul never gave up on his fellow Jews. In fact, Paul longed for his fellow Jews to come to faith in Jesus. We read about this in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Paul there, reflecting on his Jewish kinsmen, says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. His brothers and kinsmen according to the flesh, of course, are the Jews. And at this point, they by and large... Paul writes this, they by and large rejected the gospel and his heart is breaking for them. I have unceasing anguish in my heart for them. And what we see is that Paul places this priority on Jewish evangelism actually throughout the book of Acts. So that what we see here in Acts chapter 13 is Paul's consistent pattern. When he goes to a city, he will go to the synagogue first where the Jews are gathered. He will preach the gospel to them first and then to the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas do not back off or retreat from evangelizing their fellow Jews, even though they faced Jewish opposition. Why? Because, as they state here in our text, God's Word has determined the necessity of Jewish evangelism. God has declared and determined in His Word that the Jews would hear the good news of God's salvation in and through their Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Notice also, though, at the same time, Jewish opposition does not deter Paul and Barnabas from turning to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And why? 
for the very same reason. Because God's word has made it clear that God's purpose is that through the Jewish Messiah, not only would Jews experience salvation and redemption, but that salvation and redemption would go to all the peoples of the world. Notice here in our text, Paul and Barnabas go on to cite Isaiah 49 verse 6. You see it there in Acts 13 verse 47. So look at verse 47. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now this is a messianic prophecy. It's recorded by Isaiah the prophet, of course. And it's regarding the promised servant of the Lord, the promised Jewish Messiah. I want to read for you the prophecy in not in whole because it's, it's longer than this, but, but give it a little bit more context and read a few verses around it, okay? So this is Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And Jesse read part of a, this for us this morning, the beginning of our service. This is what Isaiah records. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this is what the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, says to the servant of the Lord, the promised Messiah. I will use you to bring salvation and redemption to my people, Israel, but that's too light of a thing. That's too small of a thing for you to accomplish for my glory. I will use you not only to bring salvation to my people, Israel, but I will also use you to extend my light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now remember, Luke wrote both Acts and the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, Simeon was the first person to directly apply this messianic prophecy to the Lord Jesus. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus, baby Jesus, to the temple, and Simeon is there. And Simeon sees the Lord Jesus, and he pronounces these words over the Lord Jesus. He's speaking to God. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to the word, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon sees the Lord Jesus as a baby, and essentially what he does is he pronounces over him the prophetic words of Isaiah. He says, this is the servant of the Lord that has been promised. This is the light that has come, the light that would bring the Gentiles salvation. But notice, this is so interesting, notice what Paul and Barnabas do in verse 37. Paul and Barnabas apply Isaiah 49 verse 6 not to the Messiah in this context, but to themselves. 
Do you see that? So they say in verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us. Do you see that? And then they take the mission that was given to the Messiah to be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth and they apply it to themselves. The Lord commanded us saying, I have made you, that is Paul and Barnabas, a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now what's happening here? Well, of course, they are not saying that they are intending to replace the Lord Jesus. They're proclaiming the Lord Jesus as Messiah, right? They're not attempting to accomplish this work apart from the Lord Jesus. But rather, they are acknowledging that as the Lord Jesus has ascended to the Father, the Lord Jesus now will accomplish His mission and extend His light to the nations through them and through, by extension, His church. And Christ continues to do this work today. As He came to be a light to the Gentiles and extend God's salvation to the ends of the earth, and now He has ascended to the Father, He extends that light and He extends that salvation to the nations through us, His people. And here's the key, my friends, and this is the source of Paul and Barnabas's boldness. None of this was an afterthought. None of this was an accident. None of this happened by chance. None of this was just kind of a random unfolding of events. As Paul and Barnabas indicate here in these verses, it was necessary. It was purposed. It was planned. It was foretold in Scripture, and it was playing out just as God had declared it. And therefore, Paul and Barnabas met human opposition, not with uncertainty, oh no, what's happening? The Jews are opposing the gospel and the Gentiles are showing up. What are we to do? They didn't respond with fear, but rather they respond with divine boldness and confidence in God's Word and His eternal purposes. This leads us to the fourth movement in our text, and that is joy in the gospel. Joy in the gospel. So we've seen interest, opposition, boldness, and now we see joy. Look there in verse 48, just the first part of verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now, there is an interesting contrast here between verse 45 and verse 48. Notice this. In verse 45, the Jews from whom and for whom the Messiah has come are by and large filled with jealousy. But in verse 48, the Gentiles are rejoicing. Again, notice in verse 45, the Jews from whom and for whom the Messiah has come are contradicting what Paul spoke and blaspheming. But the Gentiles in verse 48 are glorifying the word of the Lord. And especially, they are glorifying, they are rejoicing in this word that salvation has come to them through this Jewish Messiah. Now, of course, our passage here is dealing with specifically the ethnic, relational, 
theological tension between Jews and Gentiles at this time. But there is a larger principle at play here that I think we need to see. And the larger principle at play is that those who are near to the promises of God in these verses are tragically blind to those promises and rejecting them. And those who are far off, we might say, from the promises of God are by the grace and mercy of God being drawn near and placing their faith in the promised Messiah. There may be some of you here this morning who say, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents aren't practicing Christians. If I'm honest, I don't really know much about the Bible. I can't really tell you many of the stories. I have a general idea of who Jesus is. But I've never really read his story in the Bible about his life and his death and his resurrection. I have friends that grew up in church. They seem to know a lot about the Bible. Their parents are Christians. But, you know, that just doesn't really describe me. If that characterizes you this morning, my friends, I've got good news for you. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, came to save folks just like you. He came to be a light to the nations and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. To those who have never heard of Him, to those who don't know Him, to those who are far off and have never read the Bible and don't really know the stories, He came so that folks like you might know salvation and redemption. But you must receive it. You must receive it by trusting in the Lord Jesus and His death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and you must follow Him as Lord. How will you respond to this good news? I hope like the Gentiles here in Antioch of Pisidia, as you hear this message proclaim, that you will rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. Fifth and the final move in our narrative is the power of the gospel. So interest, opposition, boldness, joy, and then finally power. The power of the gospel in verse 48. Look there, we read, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. Here it is. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here in our passage, we have this tension that we oftentimes see in the scriptures, oftentimes a discussion in philosophy, this tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Notice in verse 46, if you go back to verse 46, you see that those who reject the gospel, those who reject this good news, they are fully responsible for their rebellion. In verse 46, it says they thrust aside and they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That's human responsibility. But then in verse 48, you see divine sovereignty. It's those who were appointed to eternal life, appointed by God. To eternal life who believed. And notice the text does not say, and this is an important distinction to make, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. That would put the focus, that would put the emphasis on those who were believing and their faith as the ultimate cause for their salvation. 
But that's not how Luke describes what took place. Rather, Luke puts the emphasis in the right place as he says, as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. In other words, the cause of their belief, the cause of their faith, was God's prior sovereign grace and appointment. God's appointment of certain individuals to eternal life was the cause of their faith in Jesus. It's a reminder to us, every one of us who is a Christian, that faith is a gift. And finally, this salvation that comes to us is not by our own wisdom or insight or knowledge, but solely by the grace and the mercy of God. Luke records that despite the opposition that Paul and Barnabas faced in Antioch of Pisidia, God worked and He moved according to His eternal purpose and plan so that God called and God saved every single person in Antioch of Pisidia whom He had purposed to save from eternity past. Not one was left behind. And this, my friends, is the power of the gospel. And it should be an encouragement to us as Christians, as those who have been called to share this message with others, as missionaries, as those who might take this gospel to the nations and to the ends of the earth. What we see here in these verses is the certainty, the inevitability of the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, our passage is dealing with the social and cultural and relational dynamic between Jews and Gentiles in the first century, but but at the same time, there is this larger principle at play. We said that those who are far off are being brought near, but it's also true that those who are near are resisting and rejecting the good that is right there before them. Paul spoke of this tragically when he preached the gospel at first Sabbath in the synagogue. In verse 27, if you look back at the sermon that he preached, in verse 27 he says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, that is the Jews, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning them. Paul is saying they were so near. The prophecies were theirs. They heard them read every Sabbath. And yet we see here in verse 46 of our text this morning that they are persisting in their rebellion. There Paul and Barnabas say, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see, those who are near, near to the promises of God, they're blind to them, they're rejecting them, they're resisting them. This is the larger principle at play. And my friends, don't we see a similar dynamic at play in the West today? For centuries and centuries in the West, in Europe, in the United States, we have been blessed with free access to the Bible. We have been blessed to hear the gospel preached in churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We have been blessed with churches to attend, fellow Christians to gather with. And what in our current moment has been our response? 
In March of 2021, Gallup published an article entitled, quote, U.S. church membership falls below majority for the first time, end of quote. And of course, we know that at this time, Europe is much further along down this path than even we are. In other words, on the whole, we could say that the West is, seems to be, turning aside, judging ourselves unworthy of eternal life. And what does this mean? Does this mean the end of gospel advancement? Does this mean the church will die? Does this mean that the gospel will eventually stop being preached? Did it all just kind of dwindle out? I was listening to a podcast this last week entitled Uncommon Knowledge, and the episode was titled, Does God Exist? It was a conversation between the host, a Christian scientist, and two atheists. All these men are brilliant. And the two atheists were acknowledging the tremendous political, social, and ethnic benefits that have come to the West as a result of Christianity. And although they themselves are not Christians, and one in particular was deeply concerned that if the West rejects Christianity, so many of our ideals and morals that we hold in society as valuable will be lost. That apart from Christian theology, apart from Christian convictions being deeply rooted in our hearts, that we won't be able to hold on to the morals and the ethics of Christianity, and our society will continue to devolve. It was interesting, though, at one point, one of the atheists, Tom Holland, who is a historian, he said this, he said, even though there is a decline of Christianity in the West, I want you to understand that we are living in one of the greatest ages of Christian evangelism in the history of the world. This is, he says, an age of very vital Christian faith, end of quote. This from an atheist. How could he say that? What did he mean? Well, my friends, even as the West thrust aside the glory and the riches of the gospel, the gospel is spreading and churches are multiplying all over the world, especially in regions like South America and Africa and Asia. In fact, the Washington Post published an article in May of 2015 entitled, Think Christianity is Dying? No, Christianity is shifting dramatically. Article goes on to record, quote, In 1980, more Christians were found in the global south and the north for the first time in 1,000 years. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone account for one billion people. Over the past 100 years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to its nearly 5 million today, end of quote. And then the article goes on to explain the rapid spread of Christianity in Asia. And how do we explain this? You might call it divine jiu-jitsu. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, it was necessary. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Christ will be a light to the Gentiles so that God's salvation might go to the ends of the earth. It is the certain inevitability of the triumph 
of the gospel. And this, my friends, should make us all the more bold to share this good news with our families, with our neighbors, and to take it to the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for this gift of salvation. And Lord, I do pray for those who are here this morning who have heard this message so many times and yet, Lord, have thrust it aside, have shown themselves to this point to be unworthy of eternal life. Lord, I pray that by your sovereign grace and mercy, you might open eyes and ears and hearts. And Lord, I pray that they would receive this treasure. Father, for those who may be far off, this gospel in some ways is new and strange, and even attending church may be seem new and strange. Lord, I pray that you would grant grace and mercy that they might come to believe, and even as the Gentiles in Antioch and Pisidia in the first century, that they might rejoice and glory in this promise of salvation in Jesus, that they might find salvation even in these moments now through faith in Him. And then, Lord, as Christians, we pray, Lord, that You would help us not to take for granted the wonderful gift that You have given us in Christ and in the Gospel. And, Lord, we pray that, like Paul and Barnabas, You would fill us with holy boldness. May we have confidence in Your Word. And, Lord, even as we face various hardships or difficulties or discouragements, Lord, help us to be all the more faithful to proclaim this message, this good news, knowing that the gospel will in fact triumph by your power. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen.